No doubt about it. It's a metaphor for Christ and the church. And so we're going to look uh, again tonight at the Song of Solomon. I can't tell you how many people are saying to me, I've never heard it taught this way. And I said, well, then you've heard it taught wrong. Not really. Not really. It's open. It is a poem. And there's many interpretations. I just really believe we've settled on the one that makes the most sense. And it really harmonizes with the rest of the Word of God. And it teaches a lot of important lessons. So let's pray that God speaks to us tonight. I, I, heard, I knew I heard something. Now, some of you are looking at me like, what are you doing, Pastor Jeff? The back of this fell off, and I heard it hit. And I thought somebody dropped something over. I thought Jesse dropped something. But then Jesse was looking down here at me, and I found it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the blessing of God on the Word of God tonight. Church, can you just lift a hand up towards him and say, Lord, tonight I receive your word. Draw me close to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Turn to your neighbor and preach a little bit. Tell him he loves you more than you know. Amen. The one that got away. This Shulamite, did I drop that tic-tac too? Now, let me tell you a quick tic-tac story. I, this is true. I was preaching one time, and I had one in my mouth. And all of a sudden, it shot out. Now, let me tell you how anointed I was. I caught it right there. I really did. Everybody went, ooh. It's a true story. The Shulamite in our story is the one that got away, the one woman that Solomon could not get. And you know what the Lord wants his bride to be? The one woman the world can't get. And that's what it's all about. Now, last time we noted that the Shulamite had experienced a hindered love and a hungry love as it related to the shepherd. Now, if you're here for the first time tonight, quickly. The main characters in this story are the shepherd, who is a picture of Christ Jesus. Then there is the Shulamite, who is a picture of the church or the individual believer. All right? So the Shulamite is the church. The shepherd is Christ. Solomon in the story is the tempter. No way he's Christ-like. As a matter of fact, I'm going to show you this in this uh, teaching tonight. We're going to see there's no way that Solomon could be a type of Christ in this story. Then there is the court women. The court women uh, are pictures of the citizens of this world who, who love Solomon, who represents king of the world, and have no desire for the shepherd and don't understand the Shulamites' love for the shepherd. So the court women represent the world, and they're always trying to lure the Shulamite away from the shepherd and into the arms of Solomon, and she resists it every time. Now, last time, let's start over. We noted that the Shulamite was experiencing, had experienced a hindered love. All kinds of things got in her way, contesting her affection for the shepherd. And she had a hungry love as it related to the shepherd. She was longing for the shepherd. Now, we close with the Shulamite having had a dream of the shepherd. When she awoke, she literally went on a search for him through the streets. 
Now, God overruled the whole mistaken expedition, and the journey ended with this verse, chapter 3, verse 3. The watchmen found her wandering around in the streets. The watchmen that go about the city found me, she testifies, to whom I said, have you seen him whom my soul loves? Now, she looked a little bit batty right about here to these watchmen. What are you doing wandering the dark streets at night alone, a beautiful woman, talking about asking us if we've seen some shepherd? She was, her dream had been so real to her that when she woke up and it wasn't real, it was real enough and vivid enough for her that she went in search of the shepherd into the streets, literally went on a hunt for him. Now, she left the watchman either in the city or at the gate of her house, and next we see that she finds her beloved. Chapter 3, verse 4, she says, Scarcely had I passed them, scarcely were the watchmen gone, when I found the one my heart loves. Isn't that beautiful? We're not told how or why he happened to be there. We don't have to know. He was there. Just when she needed him the most, there he was after all that vain searching, that dangerous journey she took, she comes back, and there he is. Now, I'm going to tell you something I've noticed about the Lord. I have never seen a genuine seeker that did not finally encounter the Lord. Matter of fact, God loves genuine seekers. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. Ask and it shall be given. Call unto me and I will show you great and mighty things you have not yet known. So here she was seeking for the shepherd. She felt that she had sought for him in vain. But right when she thought it had all been in vain, there he was. And he does the same with you and me. We may go down many detours in life searching many times for what we're not sure of. We just know something's missing and we're on a hunt. And right when we think it's all been in vain, if we are genuinely seeking his truth, he will reveal himself to us. I've never, never seen God turn aside an honest seeker. The Bible says, Jeremiah 29, 13, if you look for me wholeheartedly, read the last four words with me, you will find me. You look for me, you're going to find me. Hallelujah. And I think every day, even though we're saved, we ought to be on the hunt for knowing Jesus more than we knew him the day before. The search and the hunger should never go away. Amen? Now, what does she do when she sees him? She seized him. She grabbed hold of him. She testifies in the last part of verse 4, I held him and I would not let him go until I had brought him to the house of my mother and into the chamber of her who conceived me. Now, first there was the dream with its nightmare qualities. Then the rude awakening. Then came the midnight search through the darkened streets that didn't produce anything but trouble and embarrassment. The embarrassing encounter with the guards. But then there he was. Then there he was. Now remember, he's a picture of Christ, and she's a picture of the church. There he was, and no wonder she wouldn't let him go. She'd been through a lot, and now there he is, really and truly. She reminds us of Mary Magdalene. Remember that story who, when she found Jesus after his resurrection? Uh, she was 
back there hanging around the empty tomb. Her heart was broken. She said one of the most uh, powerful statements in the Word of God, full of pathos, when she said, they have taken away my Lord, and I know not where they have laid him. Amen? So those were Mary's words, and she had flung her arms around him, clinging. Remember that? And Jesus said, let go of me. You can't cling to me this way, but go and tell the disciples you've seen me. And so Mary could have said with the Shulamite, I held him and would not let him go. You ever feel that way about Jesus? You know, church, let me tell you something. We are not in a religion of rules and regulations and rule books and playbooks and, and ritual. We are in a relationship of love. You know what Jesus said to one of the churches in Revelation? He said, here's my, my issue with you. Laodicean church, you have left your first love. See, he notices when our love, love for him either flows or ebbs. He knows it. And so we're not in a, in a religion. We're in a love relationship. And this poem, this Song of Solomon, really displays this reality. We're in a love relationship. She says, I'm in love with this shepherd. I held him and I would not let him go. That's exactly the way we ought to feel about Jesus. We ought to be slap happy in love with the Savior. Paul said, the love of Christ is what is constraining me. We love him because he first loved us. We're in a love relationship, and it ought to grow and increase by the day. Now, when was the last time you felt a surge of emotion like this Shulamite, where you said, I feel so much love for him, Lord, I'm clinging. I do not want to let you go. When was the last time that kind of emotion surged through you? I think the real attack on the church in our day, and I think that this is the Laodicean church age, where we say, I'm rich and have need of nothing, but we don't know that we're miserable, poor, wretched, blind, and naked. We've departed from our first love. Many, many, many denominations that used to be bulwarks for the truth have now completely departed from the Word of God. There is an apostasy happening in the land. Many are losing their first love. Didn't the apostle predict that in 2 Timothy 4? He said, many will depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of demons. And so there is a battle over the affection we have for the shepherd in our heart. See, there is a world out there just like those court women in this story. And that world out there is doing everything in the world to lure us away from our love relationship with the shepherd. Because when that love is gone, you're just going through the motions. There is nothing real to it. You go to church robotically. You sing robotically. You open your Bible robotically. There's no emotion behind it, and there ought to be holy passion. That's what this song is about. Now, once again, the Shulamite turns her attention to the court women when she's grabbed hold of the shepherd and won't let go. She turns her attention to the court women, and she warns them again. Verse 5, I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or by the does of the field. She means I, I charge you by everything light of foot and fast. 
Do not stir up nor awaken love until it pleases. You remember what that means? She's saying, the kind of love that I've got for the shepherd will be consummated in a context. That context will be marriage. And she's saying to these court women, don't even think about trying to stir up passion in me for Solomon. Because you're wasting your time. I'm sold out on the shepherd. I'm committed to the shepherd. He's my Lord. He's my love. He's my all. So don't you dare try to stir up illicit passion in me for your man because I've got my man and it's the shepherd. So don't even try to seduce me or lure me or tempt me in any way. It's not going to work. That's what she's saying right there. The court women were all for Solomon and for his agenda. They continuously sought to entice the Shulamite into Solomon's arms. And it froze on me. There we go. Sometimes it does this. I apologize. There we go. And as she told them in chapter 2, verse 7, she's saying the same thing now. She said this before. Same words in chapter 2, verse 7. Don't even try to stir my passions toward another. Now, church, church, that's the way we need to feel towards our Savior. When the world tries to entice us and tempt us and lure us, our message needs to be the Shulamite's message. Don't even try to stir up illicit passion in me. I want nothing to do with the world or the things in the world. I only want him. You're wasting your time. That's the message. Now, we're going to leave her there. She's embraced the shepherd. She has made her stand. She's told the court women to leave her alone. And in the next verse, the scene and the subject change. We're going to leave her resolutely true to her beloved shepherd, warning those that would lure her away from him. And we as well are going to take our stand with her. Amen? Sold out completely to our great shepherd. Can we just lift our hand towards the Lord just for a minute and say, Lord, I'm sold out to you. Nothing the world has to offer appeals to me. As the Shulamite was committed to the shepherd, I am committed to you. Amen. Give him a hand of praise tonight. He's worth it. Amen. Now, this next section is just called an hour of talk. In the hour of talk, we're going to see something. We're going to see Solomon ride into Jerusalem. It kind of reminds you when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the donkey, but the personality and the attitude and the spirit are totally opposite and different. But as he rides into town, we're going to see the world in all of its pomp, all of its power, all of its prosperity, and all of its popularity. And Solomon is headed now back to Jerusalem. The streets of the city we see are lined with cheering subjects, one of the crowd, as he enters in, speaks up and remarks on all the pomp. He says, look at all that. Now look at what he says in verse 6. We don't know who he is, but this is what the man yells out. Who is this coming out of the wilderness like pillars of smoke, perfumed with myrrh and frankincense, with all the merchant's fragrant powers? Who is this? Now what we see here is a picture of the world welcoming its own and praising in Solomon the things it most admired. Have you noticed that the world praises its own? 
Hello, church. Have you noticed the last thing it does is praise those that are not of the world? Jesus said, if they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. What we have here is a picture of the world admiring and praising one of its own. And sometimes it'll be a real shock to you. It was a shock to me in my young Christian life when I took a stand for Jesus at my college, University of North Texas. I'll go ahead and say it. And when I took a a strong stand for the Lord, it was amazing to me and shocking to me how viciously they came against me in classrooms with totally carnal, worldly professors, how they attacked me and would ostracize me. It it amazed me because the world embraces its own. The world covers for its own. The world loves its own. But if you are in the world but not of the world as a believer, the world will not love you. So don't let it break your heart. Just say goodbye and hang on to the shepherd. As this crowd is cheering for Solomon, there is no thought of the shepherd and no thought of the Shulamite. We might say that there's no thought of Christ and his church in this world's mind. Now, I don't know if you notice these things like I do, but I'm keenly aware of it. A polarization has happened in America, a great dividing of the way. If you are walking with Christ and you love the shepherd, you soon realize that those over here in the world, lost, unsaved, do not think of him and do not think of you. The Word of God warns us about such a world. Look what John said. He said, if any man loves the world, the love of the Father isn't even in him. If you're in love with this current world, the love of the Father is not dwelling in you. If the love of the Father is dwelling in you, you cannot amen this world. Look what John goes on to say. All that is in the world, then he lists them, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father. Did you catch that? Lust of eyes, lust of flesh, pride of life, those things don't come from the Father of lights in whom there is no variableness, neither shadow of change. But every good gift and every perfect gift is what comes down from the Father of lights, James said. So when you see lust of flesh, lust of eyes, boastful pride of life, you need to know that that's not proceeding from the Father who sent the Son. When John speaks of the world, he's not referring to God's creation. And I want to be clear about this for maybe some of you that are new to the faith. When he says the world, he's not talking about the beautiful creation. I love the creation that God made. I'm a marvel at it all the time. I mean, it just, I love what God made. I love all the creatures and everything. It's so stupendous, so awesome. That's not what John's saying when he says, if you love the world. He's talking about an evil system to human life and society as it is organized and propagated without acknowledging God. See, the Bible says that Satan is the prince of this world. And this world is structured around flesh, around satanic activity, around a worldview that does not accept or receive or love God. 
That's why when you get saved and fall in love with God, that world system spews you out. It is the devil's lair, the world John's talking about. It's the devil's lair for sinners, and it's the devil's lure for saints. This world, it sparkles, it glitters, it glistens, it calls, it seduces, it summons, it beckons. Leave the shepherd and come to me. And if you love that world system that is surrounded around the lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, and the pride of life, and satanic activity that rejects God and doesn't even acknowledge God, you can't be in love with the Father. So as Solomon enters the city, we see the world cheering its own. Oh, look at him. All that pomp, all that, all of that impressive display. We see the lust of the eyes of the flesh and the pride of life all rejoicing in Solomon's worldly magnificence. In this hour of talk, we see an outward show and we see an inward sham. And I promise you, church, the world is a show and the world is a sham. If you think something is there that you can get anything out of, you're, you're deceived. Nothing this world has to offer. I mean, the world system, the evil world system, nothing that it has to offer is worth getting. It's a sham. It's a fraud. It is the great pretender. What it offers always melts in your hand and like hot sand sifting through your fingers. You thought you saw water, but it was only a mirage. Now you're in the hot desert and you're dying. Ask the prodigal son if there's anything in the world. He learned quick. He ended up eating pig's food in a pigsty, saying to himself, what was I thinking when I left the Father's house? Okay? This is the prison to which the Shulamite had been taken. This, this show and this sham. But she resisted it. And so should we. We're in this world, listen to this, I love this. We're in this world not to be a betters of its system, but ambassadors to its conscience. That's what we're called to do. Not to be of it, but in it, speaking truth to it. In the love of God. Next, a second member of the adoring crowd speaks up and points out Solomon's power. And here's what they say in verse 7. Look, it's Solomon's bed. That means his carriage. Surrounded by 60 heroic men, the best of Israel's soldiers, we hear in that verse, power is on display. Solomon was entering the city like an oriental despot riding in style. And unlike Jesus, who entered Jerusalem riding a lowly donkey, nothing is humble and nothing is lowly about Solomon. So he can't be Christ in this story. And he is surrounded by strength. Look at that. Sixty heroic men. Have you noticed the world always seeks to impress its inhabitants with displays of power? You ever notice that? The world is always trying to impress us with power, authority, things. 
The onlookers notice heroic men and powerful weapons as well. Verse 8, all those men, they are skilled swordsmen, experienced warriors. Each wears a sword on his thigh, ready to defend the king against an attack in the night. What is that verse saying? All of their security was in earthly, worldly men, not in the shepherd. And our world's security is in how many nukes does a nation have? How strong is a nation's military? Let me tell you something, folks. If God turns against you, not all the armies in the world can help you. And if God is for you, not all the armies put together can take you down. The Bible says the horse is prepared for the day of battle, but deliverance is of the Lord. But now another person, a third person speaks, and he glorified another aspect of Solomon's impressive worldly display. It's prosperity. Solomon's prosperity. Look at verses 9 and 10. King Solomon's carriage is built of wood imported from Lebanon. Its posts are silver. Its canopy is gold. Its cushions are purple. Can you imagine having in your bedroom a bed where the posts are solid silver? A lot of you would be down there at the nearest jewelry store cashing it in tomorrow. He said its canopy is made of pure beaten gold. Its cushions purple. Prosperity. Impressive materialism. Donald Trump squared. It was decorated with love by the young women of Jerusalem. Now here what we have is a tribute to the purchasing power of money. One of the gods of this world, Jesus called money the mammon of unrighteousness, and he said there's no way you can serve God and serve money at the same time. You will serve one or the other. God doesn't care if you have millions of dollars as long as the millions of dollars don't have you. God's not against money. Money's neutral. What God is against what is what money can do to you if you're not wise and mature. Jesus called it the mammon of unrighteousness, meaning, and he went on to say, man can't serve two gods at the same time. He will love one and hate the other or hold the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and mammon. You serve God and make his kingdom first. And Jesus said, all these other things that Gentiles live and breathe and eat and sleep to obtain will be added to you anyway. But as long as the kingdom of God is first and you serve him. But here's Solomon. Oh, he's impressive. He is impressive. Solomon's income was famed throughout the world. He had so much wealth that even the pots and pans in his kitchen were made of gold. And there's the verses you can look it up in. Can you imagine frying some eggs in a pan made of pure gold? But that's what he did. He had more gold than he knew what to do with. He had so much gold, he didn't even mess with silver very much. As the world was impressed with power, it is also impressed with wealth. The crowd commented on Solomon's wealth as he strode in 
or as he strode by in all of his pomp and power, they commented on his incredible wealth. They also mentioned his extravagance. He made the pillars of his bed with silver and the bottom with, was gold. A thousand families in Jerusalem might be starving, but he must have the best. Reminds me of someone else around today. And we're also told that his carriage was decorated with love by the young women of Jerusalem. Oh, this suggests all that is romantic. Money can buy purple and money can buy passion, but as the Beatles said, money can't buy you love. I'm not quoting the Beatles as an authority because I can point to the Bible says the same thing. Guess what? Money can't buy the love of the shepherd. Purple and passion, they're for sale to anybody that's got the money, but not the love of the shepherd. We love him only because he first loved us. You can't buy his love. You can't earn his love. It comes to you by sheer grace. God loved me and he loved you. You know why? Because he decided to. That's what agape means. Agape means I decide to love someone. I decide. It's not dependent. I'm being overwhelmed with an emotion. Agape love is a decision. I lo- and God decided. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. You know what that's telling us? While we were spitting in the face of God with all of our sin, he died for the ungodly. Now, I don't know about you, but if somebody has been great to me and blessed me for years on end, I don't think I'm going to die for hardly anybody I can think of. But if somebody is spitting on me and slapping me and cursing me, and then I go die for them, then something is at work that is higher than, some, than anything I can comprehend. It's the love of God. He, he died for us while we were yet sinners. So you can't buy his love. All you can do really is receive his love. Receive it. It's there for you. So Solomon's pomp, power, and prosperity are all admired out loud by the adoring crowd as the king passes. Oh, look at that pomp. Look at that power. Look at his wealth and riches. Look at that. But there's one other thing somebody else pipes up and mentions. That's his popularity. Verse 11 says, one of them shouts out, Come out to see King Solomon, O daughters of Zion. The expression daughters of Zion, I was very surprised to discover this. That expression, daughters of Zion, occurs only here and in two passages in Isaiah. That's the only time in the Bible you will find the phrase daughters of Zion. Interestingly, Isaiah uses the phrase daughters of Zion as an expression of contempt. And let me read to you what he says about them. Because the daughters of Zion, this is Isaiah, because the daughters of Zion are haughty and walk with stretched forth necks and wanton eyes, walking and mincing as they go, and making a tinkling with their feet. Therefore, the Lord will smite with a scab the crown of the head of the daughters of Zion, and the Lord will expose their scalps. You say, what's going on there? This passage is describing morally loose, arrogant, women who do not honor God 
and he's using it as a metaphor for Israel. The Holy Spirit uses this passage to depict Israel at her worst. She is brazen, she is immodest, and she's flaunting her sin. And that was before they fell under judgment and were carried off into captivity. Now, I want to be up here and not, and not down, and I'm not here to be a downer, but I got to tell you, when I read that, I see America flaunting our sin, walking arrogantly, almost double-dog daring God to judge us. No modesty, no decency, calling good evil and evil good. And what happened to Israel was when they were walking this way and he called them daughters of Zion, they were just steps away from judgment that took them away for decades, and they lost their land and lost it all. Now, the Holy Spirit uses this passage to depict Israel this way, and he's also using that phrase to describe the court women that were surrounding the Shulamite in Solomon's pavilion. There's no reason to believe the phrase daughters of Zion means anything but the same thing in the Song of Solomon that it meant when it came from Isaiah. They are the worldly women of Solomon's court and those who admire him as citizens of his kingdom. These are the women that admire the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, and they were about as much like the Shulamite as night is from day. They are women of doubtful morals, the kind of women who would throw themselves at Solomon. The worldly, shallow crowd shouting Solomon's praises see nothing wrong with these daughters of Zion throwing themselves at him. Perfect picture of a culture and a society that is dull of heart and no longer senses that sin is sin and right is right and wrong is wrong. And we're there. Oh, church, we're there. They not only admired him, but they applauded him. And can I say again, we're also there. Knowing these things, that these things are worthy of death, Paul said in Romans 1.28, knowing that these things are, those that do these things are worthy of death, not only amen what they're doing, but applaud what they're doing. Same thing. Now, the second half of verse 11 is very telling of the character of Solomon. Chapter 3, verse 11 he wears the crown his mother gave him on his wedding day, the day of Solomon's merriment. Now, what does that tell us about Solomon? Catch this now. The man who in this book is trying to conquer the affections of the Shulamite is a married man. Hardly a type of Christ, as some try to make him in their interpretation of this book. If Solomon is a type of Christ, here's Solomon as a married man trying to seduce another woman. Don't tell me that's a type of Christ. <laughs> Yet again, the worldly crowd is so numb and so dull-hearted, they have no issue with this. They have no issue with the fact that their king, a married man who was married in front of the whole kingdom, is out trying to seduce another woman in front of their very eyes. They have no issue with it. They're dull-hearted. Their consciences are seared. Instead, they celebrate him. Are we not there today? 
How like our world this is, where evil is celebrated and good is castigated. In the devil's world, all is upside down and inside out. Kathy and I are driving here tonight. We're listening to the radio. And, and, and we just flipped across the news and story after story, all about homosexuality and lesbianism, homosexual rights, lesbian rights, all these different rights for things that Scripture would call sin. And I said, good grief, Kathy. Get it off the news and turn it on to something else. And it went to a commercial. And guess what that was about? And I said, you know, when I started preaching 40 years ago, this, this country I'm in now was a different country back then. It has happened in one generation. We're not just in a, we're not just in a slow, gradual decline. We're in a free fall. It goes down by the hour. So what do we do? We put our arms around our shepherd, and we say to him, I will not let you go. And we say to the world, you've got nothing for me. <clears throat> Amen? Well, let's look a bit more closely at the crown uh, the crowd speaks about so admiringly as we come to the close tonight. Uh, he, they mention the crown. It's not the crown of the nation of Israel that Solomon is wearing. The crown mentioned is a nuptial crown, not a national crown. It's the crown, here's the quote, the crown wherewith his mother crowned him on the day of his espousals. He's riding in a Jerusalem with all these cheering citizens, wearing the crown his mother gave him on the day he was married, but he's living a completely duplicitous life. The crown on his head does not betray the life he lives. All show and sham. So the crowd noted two things about the crown. This speaker that just spoke up noticed it. First, the speaker referred to the day of Solomon's marriage. He had married the daughter of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. David would never have endorsed that marriage. He would never have said, that's a good choice, son. You know why? Because Moses would not have endorsed it in the law. Moses had legislated against any marriage with a woman outside God's covenant. He told them, don't intermarry with women or with men, either way, that are not a part of the covenant I've made with you. So we hear Paul saying in the New Testament, be not unequally yoked with an unbeliever for what fellowship does light have with darkness. Paul is just bringing Old Testament principles into New Testament truth. Now here's this Solomon. He's wearing the crown. He's got the show, but it's a sham. The crown he's wearing is a sham because it doesn't mean anything to him. He's not a covenant man. He's not a loyal man. You wouldn't trust him with your daughter for one minute on a bright, sunny day. <laughs> a marriage with an Egyptian was just the kind of worldly marriage that appealed to Solomon's political instincts. His marriage was totally political. It had been a political union, not a covenant union. The covenant meant nothing to him. Egypt is always pictured in the Bible as a type of the world. Solomon was married to the world not to God, as were all the citizens of his kingdom. So here we have a picture. Here's this Shulamite. Now this Shulamite, who is totally dedicated to the shepherd, a picture of you and me, there she is. The shepherd is not standing next to her. 
She's in love with him, but he's in another place like we are right now. We love him, but we're in this world, Solomon's pavilion, and our shepherd is in heaven. We love him whom we have not yet seen, but one day he will come and take us out of Solomon's pavilion, out of this world, and carry us into glory. But until then, we have cascading and and marching by in front of us all the pomp and power and prosperity and popularity of the world. And we're tempted with the same things she was. But this book wants us to understand Solomon was totally married to the world. This Shulamite was married to the shepherd. And there's two kinds of people in this world right now. Those that are married to this world and love it, and those who are in it, but not of it. Two kinds of people. That's it. There's no riding the fence. Somebody said, well, I just got one foot in the world and one foot in the kingdom, and that gives me balance. Let me ask you a question. If you had one foot in a refrigerator and another foot in boiling water, would you be balanced? You'd be uncomfortable on every side. You can't have one foot in the world and one foot in the kingdom. So, powerful message here. And here in this book, Solomon, a married man, has gathered around himself a large harem of women, so much for his ideas of marriage. Now, in closing, I want you to notice that the onlookers spoke about the day of his marriage being the day of his merriment. Apparently, whatever gladness he might have found in his worldly marriage quickly evaporated. You know why? Because the things of this world never satisfy long-term. They don't satisfy long-term. I'm going to marry this Egyptian woman. I'm going to be merry. He was merry that day. He wasn't merry anymore because he was always looking for happiness somewhere else. You know how you'll know you're content? you'll quit looking for happiness everywhere else. He that is content has great gain, Hebrews says. So Solomon, you know, got the Egyptian woman and all these other women. In, I mean, 700 women in the, let's see, what was it? It was 1,000 wives and 700 women in the country. 1,700 women in his life, and the dude still wasn't happy. Something wrong with that picture. Okay? It's because the things of this world never satisfy. They, they don't deliver what they promise they can't. And he was doing the same thing here by trying to seduce the Shulamite. Maybe she'll make me happy. Maybe he'll make me happy. Maybe that'll make me happy. Maybe that house, that car, that job, that person, that state, that city, that dress, that suit, those clothes. None of it does. Happiness is an inside job. And happiness comes from being at peace with God. That's where it comes from. If you don't start there, you're not going to be happy. The Shulamite wanted none of it. She's not impressed with the pomp, power, prosperity, or popularity of worldly Solomon. And so it should be with us. 
The world always comes knocking with all four of those enticements, yet they cannot hold a candle to the love and fellowship of our great shepherd. Amen? Let me read something as we close. Let's stand together as a matter of fact, and let me just read this. One person phrased it like this, and I liked it. Nay, world, I turn away. Though thou seem fair and good, that friendly outstretched hand of thine is stained with Jesus' blood. This world has nothing for us. We're in it, but not of it. We're ambassadors to its conscience. Can we just lift our hands and thank God? Lord, thank you for this powerful message from the Song of Solomon. Thank you, Lord, that the world really doesn't have anything to Even Solomon could not find happiness. We remember his words, Lord, vanity, vanity, all is vanity. He never found what he was looking for. But Lord Jesus has come to live in our heart. And we thank you, Lord God, for his presence right now. Now, I think after a message like this, we ought to just say to him, Lord, you're my shepherd. I will not be enticed by another. Increase my love for you as the day of your return draws near. Let my lamp be filled with the oil of the Spirit and fresh relationship with you. In Jesus' name. Bless the Lord, oh my soul. Let's sing it. And all that is within me, bless his holy Let's lift our hands and just bless the Lord. Our great shepherd. Oh, bless the Lord. Yes, Lord. Oh, my soul. And all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Give him a hand of praise tonight.